The year is 1986. The Chicago Bears had just shuffled their way into the hearts of every living American. Buckner botched the Mets into becoming amazing, and Larry Legend was the NBA MVP taking the Boston Celtics to the promised land. It was a spectacular year in the world of sports, but for sports cards, something was brewing when Flair would make a product that sent shockwaves through the hobby for decades. Strap in, nerds! This is the first ever sports card nobody history lesson, and we're diving into Fleer's 1986 NBA basketball set. Let's talk about it. Welcome to the show. I'm Shane Norton, a.k.a. The Sports Card Nobody, and this is episode 10 of the Sports Card Nobody podcast. Now, briefly... I want to talk a little bit about part of the reason I love this hobby so much. Obviously, collecting the cards and things I've talked about in the past, the uh, expression of things that you love, things that you're passionate about, extensions of these things that we love, of the sports or the entertainment or whatever it is, the wrestling, the, the Marvel cards, whatever it is that we love, the trading card and sports card hobby gives us a way to share that with the world. I've talked about it a million times. I'm going to talk about it a million times more. Now, that being said, there is something else I absolutely adore about sports cards in general. I am a little bit of a nerd. I enjoy reading. I enjoy learning. I enjoy taking in information. I love how many content creators there are in this hobby. There's just so much to really just grab onto and take in. Now... The thing that's great about sports cards is the just ridiculous history of it all. It is so vast and so big. I mean, cards that started way back in, you know, pre-war era all the way to now and how much everything has changed and evolved and all the different eras of ups and downs and all, how much everything is just so big. There's so much to dive into and to learn and to enjoy and take in all the numbers. I mean, one of the most popular things right now, I mean, card ladders exploding, right? Because people just love digging into the data of the sports card hobby. How much is this card selling for? How much is the all-time high on that? You know, where are the trends and the highs and the lows and all that? It's that data and that, that information taken that, you know, people are just drawn to it. And I'm one of those people. I, I really genuinely love to do that. It's fun reading about different eras that I, you know, I, I don't know anything about, about, you know, baseball in the fifties other than what I read and see. So reading about the cards from then is awesome. Seeing other people who talk about vintage in a way that I just, you know, I, it, it isn't necessarily my game, but it becomes more and more interesting to me when I hear other people share what vintage is all about. And same thing with the wrestling cards, right? I, I've recently been listening to so much wrestling content, Zen morning, and uh, Tony Vela over at uh, Worlds Collide, that podcast and the way they talk about the history of wrestling cards. I mean, they did a whole series where they went through uh, like every single set or whatever it was. And it's all just like, give it to me, hook it to my veins. I want to know about this. I love uh, I love learning about the history of all this stuff. Well, that sort of extra passion of mine is kind of why I do this. I do this, I share content because I, I love the hobby more than just actually collecting and trying to make money or whatever with the cards, right? I love all of this, this deep, rich history. And I decided I wanted to start trying to dive in a little bit more. And so that's what this is. What this episode is going to be is the first ever 
what I am calling history lesson. The sports card, nobody history lesson. I have no idea how often I'll do this. We'll see how popular this, this episode might be or you know what type of responses I get about this. But I wanted to go a little bit more in depth about something. And as I hinted in the tease, that something for the very first uh, episode in this series is going to be the 1986 Fleer NBA basketball set. Now, undeniably, this is one of the most popular basketball sets of all time. The set is adorned with an era-defining design and is absolutely loaded with rookie cards for some Hall of Fame greats. But, without a doubt, the set's legendary status is truly cemented due to the inclusion of card number 57, the GOAT, Michael Jordan. You would be hard-pressed to find a single person in this hobby that will argue that Jordan's rookie is not the most iconic modern sports card of all time. And it's reached a point that it's right up there now with vintage masterpieces like the 52 Mantle or the T209 Wagner. Now, most people are shocked when they find out that Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. Similarly, you may also be surprised to learn that the 1986 Fleer was woefully unpopular upon release, even at just $9 a box. For whatever reason, the mainstream collecting public just failed to gravitate toward basketball as a whole. The final full-scale national product release had come during the 1981 campaign before Topps stopped making NBA cards altogether. And it wasn't until Flair jumped into the game five years later that anything was produced beyond niche small-scale products from Star Cards, which is something I'll touch on a bit later. Still, the failure for Flair to drive the market was so bad that they had to cut back drastically on production for their follow-up in 1987. Well, After a few years passed, some things changed. Six championships, foul line dunks, spearheading the USA Dream Team, a global culture-defining sneaker brand, and also minor league baseball, pushed Jordan into the upper echelon of the pop culture zeitgeist. His airness changed everything, and interest in collecting basketball skyrocketed, and suddenly, a once-dismissed portion of the hobby had hitched directly to Jordan's rocket headed toward the moon. Now, little did we know, La Luna was just a pit stop toward a far more dramatic journey that still lie ahead. Going as far back as 2006, which is as far back as Card Ladder's records will take me, PSA 10s of Jordan's rookies sold in the five dollars to $6,000 range. This saw a steady rate of growth for some time, starting to hit the $10,000 mark around 2013, and a short while later, there was a sudden jump reaching heights of $43,000 in 2016. At this point, the earning potential of this card was no mystery. It was more a matter of just how high will it go. The answer to that was as shocking as Dr. Malcolm being dead the entire time. Enter 2020. First, March saw the entire world shut down. Then, as we collectively hunkered in quarantine, ESPN released The Last Dance, and the fire was ignited. By May, the card hit $96,000, and in September, it officially became a six-figure piece. 
Once the 100K dam was breached, the waters came a-roaring with seemingly new records set every week. 125, 150, 208, 350. Speculation that this was going to be a $1 million card reached a fever pitch as two separate sales pulled in $720,000 each on golden auctions. It was shortly after this that things finally cooled down. Prices began to plummet and PSA 10s are now hovering around a new floor of a cool 300 grand. A mere 620% rate of growth in just two short years. Now the prices that I'm talking about here are for gem mint quality. But that said, the card has become so feverishly desired that it has become almost unattainable for most collectors. Even PSA 1s and 2s fetch over two grand. Now you could try to get your hands on one of these raw, but you're still staring down the barrel of a $1,500 bill. And that's not even considering the dangers of venturing into the murky waters of counterfeit. Well before the prices went directly through the moon and set its sights on new galaxies, it was the most faked card in the hobby. Buying raw at this point is basically an exercise in self-harm. Now you might be thinking to yourself, I just have to have a Jordan, but I don't know, maybe I'd rather try my hand and get a little lucky and try to pull one myself. Well, I've got some bad news for you. First and foremost, counterfeit packs are about as rampant as the fake Jordans themselves. Some uh, shady people out there have gotten awfully clever at opening a pack, taking out the good stuff, and putting the whole thing back together, and nobody can tell the difference. Now, there is some good news, and that good news is you can, in fact, find authenticated options out there. But uh, break out the old wallet and get ready for this one. In August of 2020, a sealed case sold at auction for just shy of $1.8 million. If you'd like to do a little bit of math, that's roughly $150,000 a box or a whopping $4,100 per pack. Please remember that in 1986, these were $9 a box. Jordan is obviously the fuel that powers the popularity and subsequently the inflation of the 86 set. But like I mentioned earlier, he has got quite a cast alongside him. Just listen to this roster of rookie cards. Charles Barkley, Akeem Olajuwon, Kara Malone, Patrick Ewing, Clyde Drexler, Dominique Wilkins, and Isaiah Thomas. I mean, come on, this is a veritable dream team in and of itself. Now, there is a little bit of a question here about how it is that all of these first ballot Hall of Famers have ended up in this same set labeled as rookies. I mean, Thomas entered the league in 1981, Wilkins in 82, Drexler in 83, Jordan, Barkley, and Olajuwon all came in 1984, and Ewing and Malone started in 1985. The answer here is the gap between Topps' 1981 release and Fleer's shot in 1986. Lack of a nationally released product meant that any players entering the league in that time just did not have a rookie card. 
this likely never to happen again. Fluke created this de facto rookie class of epic proportions. In total, removing Jordan from the picture, this group won five NBA championships, four league MVPs, and featured in a ridiculous 79 All-Star games. And I'm actually doing a little bit of a disservice here because I'm leaving out Joe Dumars and Chris Mullen. I mean, this set is so loaded, it makes your grandmother's potatoes look pathetic in comparison. Uh, All right. All right, I take that back. Mimi's potatoes are excellent, but you get what I'm saying. Now, somewhat mercifully, the co-stars in this set are far more attainable than Space Jam himself. In a PSA 9, Charles Barkley would run you under 1300 and everybody else would be less than that. In fact, if you settle for a PSA 8, you, I mean, you could have pretty much anybody for under 400 bucks. Now, the opposite end, if you want to go a little bit nuts and you want to go for that Jemmy quality PSA 10, the most expensive in the bunch is Wilkins at 17 grand, and Barkley's not too far behind at 12K. I think all the others are actually under 10. You know, that's actually not that bad, relatively, if you stack it up against MJ or, of course, Johnny Moore. What's that? You don't know who Johnny Moore is? How dare you? The man is a San Antonio Spurs legend. They even retired his jersey. It is hanging in the rafters. Yeah, okay. I I, uh, <clears throat> I didn't know who he was either. Sue me. All right, turns out Moore played 10 years of pro ball, nine with the Spurs, and one in a Mexican pro league. He led the league once with 9.6 assists a game and even had a Jordan-like comeback himself. After his lone Mexican league stint in 1988-89, he came back to his beloved Spurs where he proceeded to as Michelle Beadle so eloquently put it, crush hoes. He helped contribute to one of the greatest single-season turnarounds in NBA history, and then, like a fart in the wind, he was gone. Retired since, he has become an insane anomaly in the card-collecting world. Due to the fact that his 86 Flair cards suffered from many, many printing issues, and likely from many of folks disregarding his cards altogether, high-end Moors have become almost impossible to find. For those with insanely deep pockets who seek to collect this entire set, Johnny's number 76 is somewhat of a white whale. Most recent sales of this have reached, are you sitting down, $40,000 in a PSA 10. I don't know. Card collecting is a weird hobby. But all right, let's put the white whale to bed and let's go back to the gap real quick because this is a fascinating part of the history of this set. Now, I have mentioned several times that Flair was the first company to produce a national full-scale product after Topps stepped away. The national distinction is key here because there were other cards made during this time. Star Company holds an infamous little corner of the hobby that really deserves its own discussion. I am not going to try to dive into all of the nitty-gritty here. Maybe one day it'll get its own history lesson. But ultimately, they are credited with making the first ever Michael Jordan rookie in 1984. The difference here is that they were mainly distributed through team sets in poly bags 
And several parts of the country were never even given a chance to get their hands on them. Beyond this, there has been a litany of counterfeit issues linked to the original printing companies used, and claims even exist that the owner of Starco was backdating later printed cards to sell as originals. These factors have made it extremely hard to authenticate these sets, and as of today, only BGS will even grade them. This extremely brief summary is why most collectors dismiss these cards and consider the 1986 Flares as the true rookies for those that came into the league during this period. Since its inception, the sports card hobby has had eras of ups and downs, gold and junk, and booms and busts. The most recent explosion we've all experienced can be traced to an alignment of stars we may never see again, but undeniably Jordan's rookie was pivotal in bringing it all together. His red, white, and blue mid-dunk gem has become a linchpin to the exponential growth seen in the space and the money being dumped upon it. Without question, we've seen a market correction in 2021, and who knows what 2022 is going to bring. But regardless of what lies ahead, this set will forever be looked at as one of the most important ever made. From featuring the greatest player to ever step on the court, to capturing the era so perfectly in its design, and rounding it all out with an incredible talent featured both in base cards and stickers, collectors will surely always be looking to add a piece of history to their own personal collections in the form of a 1986 Fleer. And also Johnny Moore's in there. Thank you so incredibly much for sitting through my first ever sports card nobody history lesson. If you love this information even half as much as I love putting it together, let me know. You can find me at Sports Card Nobody on Instagram, at Sport Card Nobody on Twitter, and I'm on Facebook as well. If you want more of this kind of content, please consider subscribing and most importantly, share with friends and family. Now, before I let you go, I would be insane to not share credit for this episode. Research was deep and I would be lying if I said I wasn't standing on the shoulders of other people's work. So thank you to Card Ladder and Golden Auctions for providing all of the pricing research, Ryan Cracknell at Beckett.com for writing multiple articles on this set, Trey Trudel at Cardboard Connection and his work on the counterfeits, John over at PostWarCards.com, Luke Winky's work at WithOtis.com, Joe Orlando's efforts over at PSACard.com, all of the work from allvintagecards.com. And lastly, Emil Abanessian with sportscollectorsdaily.com. Once again, thank you so very much. That's all I got, guys. Have a great night. We'll talk soon.